Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. You may notice my voice is a little bit weak, um, so you'll have to listen extra attentively. Uh, but it, it is truly uh, a joy to be here, uh, to have this, this household, uh, this family that God has given us, uh, to spend time together and seeking to build up and encourage each other. If you wanted to build an empire, if you wanted to start a movement, if you wanted to leave a legacy, how would you do that? You know, if you go to the bookstore, uh, there are entire sections of books about leadership, about how to be successful, about how to build a business, how to be influential. And the way the world thinks about those things often finds its way into how we think about the kingdom of God, to how we think about the church. But I want us to consider today, how does God build a kingdom? You see here in Genesis 11, what, Luke just, uh, what Jonathan just read for us, <clears throat> tells us about how men build a kingdom. We read here in Genesis 11 about the, the Tower of Babel. And you notice here that, that they make a plan and they have a vision and they work together to get everybody to buy into that plan and be all on the same page, have everyone on board, uh, all be united. They even have a technolog technological innovation um, that they are, are going to use to make this plan, uh, put this plan into action. You see there in verse 3, it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bedamen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is how men build a kingdom. You get a plan, you, you get some innovation, you have a, a vision, um, and yet, what comes of this kingdom? From an earthly perspective, they had everything right, right? Uh, even God confesses nothing is going to, to stop them, except God himself. They were pursuing their own plans, their own will, and they didn't take God into account. This, this is very similar to what we see mentioned in James chapter 4 in our New Testament. James chapter 4 verse 13, we're warned, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We can make great plans. But if we're not looking to the Lord in those plans, if it's just our plans and our goals, in the end, they're going to come to nothing. Our very life, we're told, depends on the Lord. We should say, if the Lord wills, we will live, step one. 
and then we'll do this or that. Our, our very life, whether or not we even see tomorrow, depends upon the Lord. And so today I, I want us to contrast what we see in the Tower of Babel with what we see in the next chapter and the following chapters of Genesis and how God builds his kingdom, uh, beginning with Abraham, beginning with the nation of Israel, and yet even looking forward to his eternal kingdom, uh, where the promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. We need less human vision, less human ingenuity. We need more God, his plans, his purposes, his goals, his will, and his methods. I want us to think, as we talk about this, specifically about application to the church, about how we think about our work and our service in the kingdom. So first of all, we see that God's method of building a kingdom, God's way, is unimpressive. Look in chapter 11. A little later on, we start reading some genealogies here, and we're first told about a name, man named Abram there in verse 26, a descendant of, of Terah. And we don't know much about Abram at this point in chapter 11. In fact, really the only thing that we're told uh, about him, if you look down in verse 30, uh, verse 29 and 30, it says, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Verse 30, Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Okay, so we don't know a whole lot about Abraham at this point, about Abram, uh, but we do know that he has a barren wife. That's, that's kind of the, the main bit of information we have. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, the, the one thing we know about Abram is that he has a barren wife, and now God is telling Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to make you a great name. It's interesting, with Babel, remember they wanted to make themselves a great name. They, they do end up with a name, but it's the name that God gave them a name memorializing their failure. God turns to Abram, a 75-year-old man, a nomad with a barren wife, and he says, I'm going to make you a great name, and I'm going to make you a great nation. You know, if, if we wanted to build a kingdom, if we wanted to build an empire, we, we need to start off on the right foot, right? We, we, we need the right people involved in this. If you were going to look over the entire world and pick out somebody that was going to form a great nation, from an earthly perspective, Abram would be the last person on your list. He doesn't have any children, and he's 75 at this point. His wife has been barren all this time. Doesn't look like that's going anywhere. And yet, God picks out Abram, and that's who he's going to use. From an earthly perspective, God's way is unimpressive. The people that God uses are often lowly. 
When God brings his very son into the world, how does he come into the world? Laid in a manger. A carpenter. A nobody. Raised in Nazareth, right? From an earthly perspective, what good can come out of Nazareth? And when Jesus starts getting people together for his movement, for his kingdom, what kind of people does, does he find? You know, I, I need some, some good Pharisees here. I need some good Jewish leaders. And he gets fishermen. He gets a tax collector. From an earthly sense, the way that God builds a kingdom is not the way that we would do it. It's not impressive to us. It's not going to look good to men. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, uh, Paul reminds the Corinthians about this. And if you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, uh, this is a big thing that he's addressing. They had this worldly perspective and worldly value system, carnal way of looking at things. And Paul is trying to get them to realize, no, the gospel turns that upside down. He reminds them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish. Because God chose what is weak, what is low, what is despised in the world. That's what God chose. That's what his gospel appeals to. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Who are the people that are blessed? Not those who from an earthly perspective are those who are blessed. Those who are mourning. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are meek, those are the ones who are blessed. And so when we think about our work in the kingdom, it's very easy to think about the church from kind of a business standpoint. And how do we get the right programs and the right people in to get this engine going? And we're, we're going to get more people in, and we're going to be big and impressive, and everybody's going to know. Well, that's really not how God builds a kingdom at all, is it? No, it's not things that are impressive to men. It's things that are lowly and despised. Paul says in Galatians 1 and verse 10, Am I now seeking to please men or to please God? If I were still seeking to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Those two things don't go together. But if we turn back to, to Genesis, we see as well that God's way is inexplicable. Look, look to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, God has promised Abraham, promised Abram, uh, this great nation that is going to come from him, tells him to leave his, his homeland, to go to this land that he doesn't know. Abram follows. And in chapter 15, God reiterates his promise to Abraham in a slightly different uh, phrase here. In chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In, the, in verse 2, it says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3, And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram says, God, I, I know what you promised, but 
this really isn't making sense right now. Um, you, you promised me this great nation. You even now promised me a great reward, but I'm still barren. I still have no children. Is this, this man, uh, the servant of my house, is he going to be my heir? Is that, is that what you're promising? In chapter 17, when God tells him for certain that it's going to be through Sarai that he is going to have a son at 100 years old, notice in chapter 17, verse 17, it says, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I think Abram, Abraham at this point uh, is still a man of faith. Uh, and I think he, he does trust in God's promise. But Abram at least recognizes from an earthly perspective, this is, this is ridiculous. This is laughable from an earthly perspective. In fact, Isaac's name commemorates that laughter. Both uh, Isaac's name commemorates that laughter both from himself and his wife, uh, Sarah. And so from an earthly perspective, uh, God often way, works in ways that don't make sense to us. Often faith doesn't make sense from a human perspective. Faith is based on evidence, but that doesn't mean faith is based on explanation. That doesn't mean that God has told us everything that we want to know about it, and now we trust in him. Just like trusting having faith in a parent, um, I may trust that what they're telling me is for my good. That doesn't mean that they have to explain in detail why they're, they're making that decision. There's going to be many times that I may not understand why they're telling me something, but I know that they are trustworthy, and that trust is based on evidence. In the same way, we trust God, not because he has told us everything, and we are now sitting back with him, agreeing with him that, yes, that is a good idea. No, we trust in God because he's given us evidence that he is worthy of trust. Um, and so faith is not based on explanation, on full explanation. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, God makes this very clear to the children of Israel. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. It makes it very clear there are going to be many things that aren't revealed to you, many things that you don't understand, that you don't know, but I've told you what you need to know. And the things that are revealed belong to you, to keep and to obey. We see this time and time again throughout the Old Testament. You think about the book of Job. God's answer to Job at the end of the book isn't, by the way, Job, in chapter 1, uh, Satan came and he said this and I said that. You look at the end of the book, Job doesn't get that answer. Uh, evidently, that answer comes along at some point in the writing of the book of Job. But Job's answer is, you need to trust in me. Who are you to question me? We see time and time again people throughout the scripture questioning God in faith. You look through the Psalms, the laments. How long, O oh Lord? Why, why 
are you allowing this to happen? Often God doesn't give an answer, give an explanation rather, to that prayer. And yet that's the, the prayer of faith because we recognize God is the one with the answer. You see that in the book of Habakkuk as well. Habakkuk the prophet coming to the Lord, uh, not understanding what's going on, and yet recognizing that God is the one who has the answers. Um, we as people of faith are, are going to have to grapple with that time, many times that we're not going to have all the answers. It's not going to make sense to us from an earthly perspective. And yet, if we could fully wrap around our minds around all the things of God, and the way that he works, we'd be serving a pretty small God, wouldn't we? Isaiah 55, if you want to turn there with me for a moment. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. We're told here in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is God, and we are not. And so we need to recognize that the way he thinks, what he sees, is from a vantage point that is, is much fuller than we are ever going to be able. And what is really being said here in Isaiah 55, look, look back in verse 7 for a moment. It says, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The point here is not simply, well, we're just never going to understand God. But the point is, you're never going to fully understand God, so you need to surrender your own thoughts, surrender your own ways, and just let him be the guide. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, we're told, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. You see that? In all your ways acknowledge him him and he will make straight your path really it's no longer our ways right we're surrendering our ways to the lord and letting it be his way from now on and so when we think about how god builds a kingdom we need to recognize it's not going to make sense to us it's not going to make sense from an earthly perspective it's not going to be how we would do things and thank the lord that it's not going to be the way we would do because his way is higher than ours. Along with that, God's way, from an earthly perspective, is inefficient. Look back in Genesis. Look in Genesis 15. <clears throat> so Abram asks, uh, God, how are you going to reward me? I, I have no descendant. God promises that his descendants are going to be uh, as uh, plentiful as the stars in the heaven. But then notice what God says later on in Genesis 15, starting in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, 
and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and uh, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God says your descendants are going to be as plentiful as the stars. And by the way, for 400 years, they're going to be slaves. You know, that, that from an earthly perspective really doesn't sound like the most efficient way to build a kingdom. Uh, you know, if, if, if you wanted to build an empire to build a kingdom, you say, I need to go out and I need to get a bunch of people and go put them in slavery. <laughs> well, no. Now you're going to say, I'm going to get a bunch of warriors, I'm going to get a bunch of people, and we're going to go conquer a land, and we're going to get everybody on the same page. This is not working very quickly. This is not working very efficiently from an earthly perspective. In fact, Abram is never going to see the fulfillment of any one of these promises, except by faith. And notice in chapter 16, after Abram's been promised uh, that God is going to give him all these offspring uh, and told that they are going to be uh, afflicted for 400 years. In chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. At this point, God hasn't specified where the offspring are going to come. Uh, they're going to come through Abram. He hasn't specified, at least from what we can see at this point, that it's going to come through Sarah. He's going to make that clear in chapter 17. And so they're sitting there thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe God needs a little bit of help here. <laughs> um, you know, things aren't working very efficiently. Things aren't progressing the way that we think they should. You know, maybe, maybe he's kind of out of ideas. Maybe... Here's an idea, God. What, what if Abraham uh, has children through Hagar? Is that the way that we think? You know, when God's way doesn't make sense to us, and it doesn't seem very efficient, and it doesn't seem to be working very well, at least from the way we think, do we think that, well, maybe, you know, maybe we could help out a little bit? Uh, you know, I think about other examples. Um, when we get later in the Old Testament and you see uh, Uzzah um, in the ox cart, you know, an ox cart seems like a pretty efficient way of, of moving that ark, right? Um, technological innovation here. Uh, it's going to be much more efficient for us to move it. You know, it, it's a whole lot more burdensome and slow for these guys to, to walk there uh, with the poles on their shoulders. Um, and yet, God doesn't need help to make things more efficient. God doesn't need help to, to be more successful in the way that we would think of it. God has a plan. And it's amazing to me that Sarai here says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Maybe we should go and do this. 
she recognizes that this is the Lord that has done that. Does she think that they're going to accomplish God's promise and God's purpose aside from, from God's working and God's plan? Is that how we think in our service to the Lord? You know, when we think about evangelism, we think about the spread of the gospel. That may not always seem very efficient, very successful um, from an earthly standpoint. Think about the parable of the sower, Luke chapter 8. This is one of the world's most inefficient farmers, right? You, you have this sower who goes out and he takes the seed and what does he do with it? He doesn't do what a normal farmer would do, right? A normal farmer would find a plot of land and he would spend time cultivating that land, plowing that land, pulling all the weeds out, pulling all the rocks out, making sure that it's ready. And then he's going to plant the seed right where it needs to go. He's not going to waste the seed, right? Well, that's not what we see in the parable of the sower. No, this sower goes out and he takes the seed and he throws it everywhere. And he throws it on the road. What, what good farmer would do that? He throws it out into the rocks. He throws it out into the weeds. From an earthly perspective, thinking, oh, don't, don't put that over there. It, it's supposed to go over here. That's not how God works. When we think about sharing the gospel, we, we might think there would be some ways to be more efficient doing that, right? God's primary purpose and primary goal isn't necessarily what we would think of as efficiency, as being successful. The seed differentiates the hearts uh, and shows which is the good and the honest heart. And so when we think about our mission in the kingdom, when we think about sharing the gospel, we need to make sure that we're not thinking, well, maybe, maybe God needs a little bit of help here. Maybe there's some way we can improve on the gospel. You think about Jesus in John chapter 6, when he has this crowd of people following him, and they're seeking for earthly things. What does Jesus do? Does he say, well, this is great, we want to keep these people coming. He says, you're not seeking the things of God. You need the bread of life. That's what you need. Let's be careful that we don't become so focused on being successful from an earthly standpoint that we compromise the gospel, that we compromise the work that God has given us to do, um, to try to be successful by our measure. You know, think about all the faithful prophets in the Old Testament. How many of them were successful from our standpoint? Think about Jeremiah being thrown into a well, Jeremiah telling the people, even at the very last, don't go down to Egypt. What do they do? They go down to Egypt and they take him with them. You know, Jeremiah preached time and time again, and time and time again, they didn't do anything that he told them to do. And yet, was Jeremiah successful? You could really talk that way about just about all the prophets. Um, all of them seem to be rejected, not listened to. And yet that's exactly what God wanted them to be doing. And so let's make sure that we're not 
measuring by human standards. By human standards, it may look very inefficient to do God's work God's way. When it comes to the spread of the gospel, when it comes to the church organization, uh, God doesn't need our help. You know, we might think, well, we have some pretty good business models uh, that we've figured out for how an organization can work and function most efficiently. Well, God has given us a pattern for how the church is supposed to look and how the church is supposed to function. He doesn't need our help. And along with this, God's way takes time. It's in chapter 17 when Abram is now 99 years old, about 24 years later, that God comes again and reiterates this promise to him and makes it clear that Sarai, his barren wife, who herself is now 90 years old, is going to bear this child. And it doesn't even end there. God, God made this promise to Abram, and Abram had to wait 25 years to see any real tangible evidence that the promise was even beginning to take place. But Abram doesn't see the fulfillment of any of those promises. He gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth not to a great number of children, to two children, and only one of them is going to receive the promise. Jacob gives birth to 12 sons, but as we were told already in Genesis 15, Shortly after that, they're going to end up down in Egypt and become slaves and be afflicted for 400 years. And then God is going to lead them out of bondage in Egypt. And what are they going to do? They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation is going to die out. And then they're going to be led into the promised land. And we think, in a sense at least, God has fulfilled his promises of this great nation and this great land. But that's not the ultimate fulfillment. Them being a a blessing to all families of the earth. And the true nation, the the true land that we're looking for, still isn't realized. We see the failure of Israel. It's another 2,000 years from God's promise to Abram that we see Christ. And even with the coming of Jesus and the establishing of the new covenant, this new kingdom, even there we, we still wait today for, for the ultimate fruition of God's plan, where all of his kingdom is brought home to be with him. It's been another 2,000 years, and we still haven't seen the end of that. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 4 talks about how God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan all along. But God doesn't work very quickly by human standards, does he? It was at the fullness of time, we're told in Ephesians 1 and verse 10, um, that God brought this to take place through Jesus. And as we said, even today, we still wait for the ultimate fulfillment of that. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we're told, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
It's not that God is inefficient. <laughs> it's not that God just takes God a, a long time to get around to what he's trying to say or to what he's trying to accomplish. God has a purpose. God has a purpose for waiting. And we need to learn to wait on him. Uh, Psalm chapter 25. Psalm 25, if you want to look there. Look with me in verse 4 and 5. Here David writes in Psalm 25, verse 4, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. He reiterates this idea of, of waiting on the Lord. Uh, later in the Psalm, verse 21, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Time and time again throughout the Psalms, we'll continue to see him talking about waiting on the Lord. But, but notice that, that idea there in verse 4 and 5. He's asking that God would make known his ways, that God would teach his paths. And yet, what does David acknowledge about that? That's going to require him waiting on the Lord. The, the, the picture that I kind of get here is uh, imagine that you are out hiking on a path that you don't know, and yet you have an old, wise mountain guide leading you exactly where you need to go down that path. And yet, he doesn't always go as fast as we want him to, right? And so I might start thinking, well, I have a pretty good idea where I need to go. I'm going to run out ahead. No, I need to wait on the true God. Uh, and I think that's kind of the imagery that we have here. It's very easy for us to think, I know the path, I know the way. It's a way that seems right to the man, to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25. And so we need to learn to wait on God's timing. Uh, I think about Mark chapter 4. Uh, we talked about this as a parable that is unique to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 29. Starting in verse 26, it says, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's, what's the point that is being driven at here in this parable? He plants the seed. He goes to sleep and he gets up and he goes to sleep and he gets up. And yet the seed grows. He knows not how, right? That farmer could sit out there all day long poking and prodding that seed, trying to get it to grow, and all he's going to do is ruin it. <laughs> he has to wait on the Lord to do his work in causing that seed to grow. I think we need to recognize that it's not about us. It's not about human effort and human ingenuity. It's not about human vision that is going to, to cause the gospel to be successful. It's about 
God being at work among us. It's about God doing his work in his time. Sometimes that's going to be going to seem to us to be extremely inefficient. Sometimes we're going to be kind of impatient with that. We need to trust in the Lord. We need to wait on him. You know, it, it would be extremely convenient, extremely much, much more efficient if we could just go ahead and appoint some elders, you know, get in some businessmen to get things running. That's not God's plan. God's design has given us some very specific instructions about how the church is to be organized, how the church is to function, uh, and the type of character that needs to be developed before we're to appoint shepherds to those roles. Uh, And in the meantime, we may get impatient with that. Uh, And and things aren't always going to run as efficiently as we want them to run. But we need to wait on the Lord, on his design, trust in his plan, be who he wants us to be all along the way. And as we share the gospel with people, you know, it's not always going to happen as quick as we want it to. We may see somebody and they have all different things going wrong in their life, all these different sins that they're struggling with. And it may be easy for me to want to get in and say, okay, well, you need to fix this, this, this. There you go. There's your solution. Well, that's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take allowing God to do his work through his word in that person's heart to help that person grow. We need to learn to wait on the Lord, to trust in him, uh, and to be exactly who he wants us to be all along the way. Because at, at the end of the day, God's way works. What happened with Babel? You know, Babel had everything going for it in a human perspective. Uh, you know, they, they had this, this great plan, this great vision, this human ingenuity. They had everybody buying into the, the plan, and this is going to be great. And God comes along and says, no, it's not. That wasn't his plan. It wasn't his way. So Babel quickly comes to ruin. And yet God's kingdom, that he begins uh, with a promise to a childless 75-year-old nomad with a barren wife, that's going to last for all eternity. Look in Daniel chapter 7. You know, Daniel is a prophet who lived through earthly kingdoms coming and going. Uh, Daniel sees his own people, uh, Judah from afar, being destroyed. And the earthly kingdom that, uh, in a sense, fulfilled God's promise to Abraham coming to nothing. Not only that, Daniel sees the kingdom of Babylon uh, kind of referring back to that Babel that we see before, uh, he sees it come to uh, destruction as well. And yet Daniel sees a vision in Daniel chapter 7. Notice in verse 13 and 14. 
says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here in contrast to Babel, where God confuses their languages. Here, this is a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages are going to come and submit to the king, to an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. God's way is eternal. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, You know, Revelation is written in a time where God's people are going through great suffering. And it looks like they're losing, right? The the earthly kingdom of Rome is uh, destroying them, is persecuting them. And yet, the book of Revelation is written to show them that God is going to be victorious in the end. And so, towards the end of Revelation... Revelation chapter 18, we see the fall of Babylon. Um, a symbolic for the fall of these earthly nations. In chapter 19, we see the fall of the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 20, we see the fall of Satan himself, the great dragon. And then in chapter 21, starting in verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. God makes all things new. God is the beginning and the end. God says it is done. He will accomplish it eternally. We see as he continues to describe this new heavens, this new earth, this holy city. Notice what he says in chapter 22, verse 3 and 4. Um, starting in verse 3, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Though all kingdoms of earth will come to a close, though (coughs) Judah and Israel fell, though Babylon fell, though the earthly existence of every single local church 
that we read about in the book of Acts ultimately falls at one point. Though those people were killed, God's kingdom continues. The gospel continues to spread. And we today can be part of that kingdom. But if we want to be part of that kingdom, we have to surrender our thoughts and our ways. We have to do things God's way. Are you willing not to trust in yourself, uh, but to in all your ways acknowledge the Lord? Are you willing to surrender your ways um, so that God may guide you? Let's make sure as a group of his people uh, that we're doing things God's way, even though that may seem inefficient, even though that means we have to wait on the Lord, even though that may be unimpressive or inexplicable from human standards. We trust in the Lord. Um, Let's make sure that we're submitting fully to him. If you have not submitted your life to the Lord, if you have not become part of his eternal kingdom, by God's grace, you can surrender your old life, you can bury your old man of sin in the waters of baptism, and by God's grace, uh, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. You need to confess your faith in Jesus as Lord today and make that uh, a commitment to him. If there's any way that we can help you in your service of the Lord, uh, won't you please let us know as we stand and sing together.